0: Welcome to Sermo Valgaris, a podcast where we unfuck classics so you don't have to. We are John, Leia, and Jack, and this week's episode is titled Deus Ex Machina. Are you crying? (laughs) Yes. Hello and welcome to Hubris 101, affectionately known as Sermo Vulgaris. You may remember me as Jack, but today I am your myth bitch, reporting for duty. I will be topping this episode, that means leading us through the fun stuff, wherein we will be talking about creation and creation myths. What are they? What do they entail? What can they teach us about those dead mad lads we love so much? In doing so, maybe, just maybe... These myths will teach us shit about ourselves. Last week we focused a lot on theory, but this is going to be a very primary text-based episode, that is, we are going straight to the source, the ancient source. Things will be getting spicy and hubristic, but you already knew that. But before we start, let's see what's going on on Classics Twitter, a little segment we do every episode to just catch you up on current events in the most in-current discipline there is. This week, we're going all the way to Yi Yi University, that is, the University of Texas at Austin, where something definitely happened. Beware, sensitive content is nigh. In particular, a trigger warning is necessary because we will be discussing pedophilia. Okay, John, give it to us.
1: So, um, on the afternoon, um, of the, uh, Capitol riots, a man known to God and the world As Thomas K. Hubbard (laughs) decided to write an email. Now what, you may ask, would be the subject of such an important email that it must coincide on the same day of such national importance and emergency? Well, you see, Hubbard was very, very angry because many people thought and still think justly that he might be a pedophile. Now, let me explain. Let me go back all the way, all the way to before this email was mass-released to about 600 people. How did we get here? So, okay. Thomas K. Hubbard is a um, professor of classics at the University of Texas at Austin, where he writes about pederasty. Now, of course, merely writing about pederasty doesn't make you a pedophile, but perhaps advocating for pederasty might Now, Hubbard has been vocal um, in the past and also throughout the corpus of his academic work that he does not believe in the age of consent. He believes that the age of consent should be abolished and that (gasps) for young men specifically, having um, intercourse and relationships with adults while adolescent was an important part of their social development. And he considered it essentially homophobic (gasps) that... um, Uh that, that adults and children were not allowed to to get it on.
0: Oh my god. What?
1: Yeah, it's it's extremely wild. Um, there, There's a lot to go into it, obviously. I don't want to misrepresent what's already a contentious issue, so I won't. But he writes very much about how um, having relationships with adults as a young, underage man is such an important part of being socialized as a gay man and... Just a bunch of weird stuff about how boys need to have sex with adults to, like, mm. mature or whatever. Essentially, once upon a time, he published his book with um, an organization known as NAMBLA. That is the um, North American Man-Boy Love Association. No. <gasps> there's, is absolutely be,
2: there's no nuance there, even. that's They just said what an they are. Yeah,
0: for the sound of me vomiting when I hear... That's, <laughs> what that stands for.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, no, it's super fucked up, just all the way around. Um, he published with that, and then people got pretty angry, and um, there were some grad students who protested outside of his house. Um, vandalism may have been involved. And then this occurred the initial controversy about Hubbard, who was already a notorious figure in the field because literally every piece of writing that he he writes and publishes somehow includes how much he thinks... The, the age of consent is bad. It's it's really fucking weird. Um, anyways, Hubbard, he gets mad. And um, at some point, um, during all of this, another student, um, a female grad student on social media, essentially calls him a pedophile. And then he gets very angry. And he's like, oh, this is hate speech. This is slander. This is libel. And so um, in a weird display of power, he decides to sue this woman for libel. He takes her to court. And this did not go out well with the rest of the classics community, which thought it was extremely unfair and dangerous that a senior faculty member was basically taking what was an informal kind of online setting disagreement into court, um, especially against a grad student since there was like a very obvious power imbalance here, not that Hubbard seems to know anything about power imbalance. (gasps) Oh,
2: Oh. shit!
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it it garnered a lot of controversy, um, which kind of culminated in, in a um, petition being put out on Twitter by a couple professors asking people to sign, in hopes that Hubbard would kind of drop his lawsuit. Um, this petition garnered over 600 signatories, I believe, and so set the stage for Hubbard's last gasping episode, much like a supernova or a nebula. I don't, I don't know stars, <laughs> much I like when that. the star dies and it like blows up much yeah, like yeah. his last final wheezing gasp into the fabric of the universe um, <laughs> that happened to coincide. Once again, might I remind you, with uh, on a day of extreme importance to, to the entire U.S. nation, a day
0: when Kanye West and Jeffree <laughs> uh, exactly. had an affair. Yes. <laughs> and signed with the also, Capitol?
1: Also, yes. Um, also, when, you know, when a bunch of um you know when a bunch of right-wing extremists stormed the Capitol. that that's important
2: oh yeah maybe not as
1: important as jeffree star but
2: still important it's up there for sure
1: oh it's It's... up there for sure but yeah (laughs) essentially that happened um on the same day that hubbard decided he sat down at his computer i guess and he was like you know what i'm gonna draft an email today because we're not talking about me enough in the news (laughs) (laughs) You know what the news is missing today me you <laughs> literally like, that me. like oh i feel uncomfortable when we're not about me
2: <laughs> yes
1: <laughs> that's it um Obviously, I don't know what was going on in Hubbard's mind. Maybe he had premeditated this before. Maybe it was like a pre-prepared email that just happened to be sent out that day. I don't know, but the optics were very bad. He sent out this email to basically every email address he could find that was associated with a signatory of that petition um, that included a lot of faculty members of different universities um, across the world, but mostly North America, as well as um, undergraduate students. Actually, we here at Class U received this email.
2: It was a lot. I want to know how he found the classic Students' Union email. Like, how much sleuthing yeah. did this man do to just he actually send a follows weird... follows us on TikTok. <laughs> He's actually a
0: fan. He's a major stan.
1: I don't know how to take that. <laughs> <laughs> if I know cupboard is like a class you, stan, I think I'm going to have to resign. No, honestly, yeah. if,
0: if he stands a TikTok, the TikTok's coming down. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but yeah, Blocked and reported. And we were one of the very many who ended up getting um, an email from from the man himself. It was a very, very long email. A lot of people were making fun of it um, on social media the day it came out. Um, What boiled down to was essentially a very strange and incoherent defense of his actions that's basically, it's okay for me to say this, and it's homophobic for you to to disagree with. Yeah, Is essentially what it said. Um, the actual contents of the email were very, very upsetting, so I'm not going to go into it. But essentially, he's like, oh, just because um, I write about pederasty doesn't mean I advocate for pederasty. And then the next, se- the next paragraph is him being like, this is why pederasty is good.
2: <sighs> so literally, he said, he literally says, um, well, if happened to me and I'm fine, should happen to everyone. Yeah, there, there was a lot. Um,
1: and, yeah, he starts talking about how, like, child molestation is a myth. It's...
0: It's... Yeah, he, he it considers was
1: it modern victimological feminist thinking that children can be molested. So, that's dangerous.
2: It's literally one of the most bonkers emails I've ever seen. I that day I, I opened up, up the spam folder of the Class you email. You gotta check the spam folder. He sent yeah, it to no, so many
1: people that it went to spam automatically
2: it was was so just so disturbing
1: yeah so that's what he did um and that's what people on classics twitter are talking about um jack back to
0: you jesus christ okay thanks john that's super fucked up now back to the regularly scheduled episode to start we'll be diving deep into greek creation myths then we will explore some Roman foundation myths. And then to finish things off, we'll be getting acquainted with two gods. Two gods we think we know, but to be honest, we may know less than we think. In other words, the order will be creation, foundation, libation, and castration. Lucky for us, we have already gotten through the what incarnation portion. All right, let's talk about creation. But first, before we hear from the Greeks, John, gun to your head, how was the world created? Go, no thinking, just do it. How was the world created? Go. Um, uh,
1: s- some guys appeared. Uh, the end. Wow. I mean, is, is that true? That- that's it. Some guys appeared. Like, Nyx and-, and-, and Gaia and all those dudes, they they showed up one day. That's what <laughs> happened.
2: Hey, sorry I'm late. <laughs> I brought Starbucks. <laughs> That's I'm obsessed with, like,
1: Okeanos, like, coming into the world. <laughs> like, with a little, like, egg cart tray of Starbucks in hand.
2: <laughs> there. Okay. <laughs> Lay a gun to your head. I was so well created. Um, Don't think about it. There was, a, there was a little speck of space dust floating around in space. And then more space dust started collecting on the one speck of space dust. Like, a beautiful little pearl of dirt. And then eventually, after enough time, probably like, I don't know, a month, um, the world was created.
1: Oh, you meant, you meant like, in the real world. Okay. Um,
2: how was the world created?
1: Um, Didn't you? uh, It exploded. It exploded. And and then things appeared. Uh, The end. That's
2: probably, yeah, that's like the most accurate thing
1: anyone has said yeah either some guys appeared if you subscribe to the mythological world creation or some things appeared something appeared out of nowhere for no reason and that's why we're here
0: and here we are all
1: generation is spontaneous we're just like those uh you know when people back then thought that like bugs came from the dirt like they would just spontaneously generate out of the dirt (laughs) Or like um, no, that, I like, think about bugs. <laughs> the fuck. Um, medieval bestiaries that are like, oh, scorpions. You know, they generate when there's too much basil. If you smell basil, it could generate Wait, in your nose. That's not true. No, what the fuck? apparently oh, uh, scorpions are not prolific fans of basil. Turns out, damn. Yeah, the <laughs> they they wouldn't be into Italian cooking. I guess you know scorpions don't have taste.
0: Why do you sound personally insulted? <laughs> like you use basil a lot and like you're just kind of upset that like a scorpio a scorpio <laughs> a scorpion would never eat your food, John. <laughs> that is maybe not I was even looking true.
1: forward to sharing a meal with a scorpion.
0: <laughs> All right. Um, to be honest, when I was thinking about uh, world creation. Uh, Yes, I went to Hebrew school. Um, The Big Bang never even came to my mind. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, you know what? You guys are valid. Uh, The Greeks are also valid, and we're going to be looking at them today. Uh, So when it comes to piecing together how the Greeks imagined the creation of the world, as much as I hate to say it, we must be thankful for... Hesiod. No, uh, John is not holding a gun to my head. Um, Hesiod's the Agony is somehow an invaluable source on this topic, and all I'm saying is that he should have stopped there. Works in days is trash, and I'm happy that his brother fucked him over. I don't know about you guys. I'm pleased. Yeah. John's awful silent right now.
1: You know what? Yeah, I'm really glad. He fucked him over so then we could have works and
0: days. We're all so lucky. Yeah. <laughs> we're so lucky to have works and days. For those who don't know, uh, his brother squandered his inheritance uh, and they had, it ha- they had it out in court. Uh, he still lost and we still laughed. So then he wrote <laughs> trash. He wrote a trash poem about it. Um, so we just try to ignore that. And instead we're going to focus on the theogony. So who is this invaluable loser? Who is Hesiod? Um, Before we start giving credit where credit is due, i.e. I will attempt to speak on Hesiod in an objective manner, I want to introduce him first as a little bitch we all know and hate, Um, academically of course. Because in my research, I went down a Hesiod hating rabbit hole and I really need to talk about what I found. (laughs) So, first, I came across two quotes about Hesiod that I would love nothing more than to share with you all here today. Both are in the wise, wise words of a man named M.L. West. One, he describes Hesiod as surly, a conservative countryman, given to reflection, no lover of women or life, who felt the gods' presence heavy. About him. Beautiful. Hesiod was at the Capitol. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Exactly. Unfortunately. That's exactly it. <laughs> There's really not, nothing else to say. I that guess. sums it up. I was
1: going to make a joke about Hesiod being on Farmers Only, but I don't think he <laughs> wants anyone and I don't think anyone wants him. Exactly. <laughs> it's true. A poor, lonely man. And that's
0: exactly what we're going to talk about. Um, <laughs> Strong so, Kato
1: energy. strong Cato energy,
0: <laughs> so uh here uh, quote number two kind of uh, sums up my thesis that I will tell you about um, so M.O.S. said he see it as a less familiar name uh, to the general reader than Homer, Aeschylus, or Plato, and no one would claim that he is as great a writer as they. oof, here's the thesis: I discovered what I always knew in my heart but couldn't say for sure and ML west is exhibit a the man dedicated a large part of his career to translating hesiod he's a hesiod guy and this is what he had to say about him <laughs> even the people who are supposed to like him don't really like him that much and even if they do like him homer is always better Um, And if you think that the ancients didn't feel the same way, uh, you'd be wrong. And I'd like to read a quick passage uh, from a platonic dialogue called Ion. So in his shortest yet vicious as ever dialogue, Socrates convinces a poor young rhapsode by the name of Ion that he is nothing but Homer trash. A rhapsode, you see, is a person who recites epic poetry professionally, and particularly Homer. When the dialogue opens, Ion has just won first prize at a competition for the musical arts in Epidorus, and Socrates decides that this is the perfect time to tell Ion that his success has nothing to do with skill and instead the divine. Essentially, the muses do his job for him. So to put it in TikTok and Twitter terms, Ion is dumb, unattractive, overweight, unworthy, and Socrates cannot stress this enough, untalented. Now we're going to read this out to you. I'll be Socrates because I'm utterly insufferable, relentless, and deserve to be put down by the state. Who wants to be Ion? Can I? Yes, Leia, you can be Ion. Yay. Let's roll. Are you only good at Homer or Hesiod too? Only at Homer. I think that's quite enough. But is there anything about which Homer and Hesiod say the same? Many things, surely. Why, then, are you good at Homer, but not at Hesiod or any other poet? Is it that Homer talks about different things from all other poets? Does he not, for the most part, talk of war, dealings of men, good and bad, laymen and craftsmen, with one another, the dealings of gods with one another and with men, the phenomena of heavens, Hades, the genealogies of gods and heroes? These are the subjects of Homer's poetry, are they not? Indeed, Socrates. And what about other poets, like Hesiod? Don't they handle the same subjects?
2: Yes, but not like Homer, Socrates. Worse? Much. <laughs> Homer's is
0: better? Yes!
1: <laughs> you know what? After hearing that. Oh, um, <laughs> I understand why they killed Socrates. <laughs> Too soon! Fucking annoying.
0: (laughs) Too soon. All he
1: does is ask stupid. He
0: has a point! Does he? Points were made. A brilliant performance, I say, to illustrate an even more brilliant point. So, yes, uh, that's my thesis. Everyone hates Hesiod, even the people who don't. Now, I will try (laughs) to talk about him nicely without vomiting. Hesiod was a poet active anywhere between 750 to 650 BCE, thus, if we are to believe it, making him a contemporary of Homer. As our dear friend, M.L. West, points out, Hesiod is often mentioned in the same breath as Homer, which he chalks up to this idea of them being the main representatives of an early worldview. Okay, and when I read that back, uh, quickly, what the fuck...
1: He really said M.L. West is the best,
0: huh? Yes. M.L. West is the best. Because you know what? The 8th century was high time for, uh, let me see, colonization, (laughs) And it seems like a really fishy time uh, to clock the Greeks as representing a (laughs) worldview. And TVH, if you have to pick agree to represent that worldview is it really going to be Hesiod if so I quit
1: I think it's funny that you used fishy to 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 characterize colonization because the colonization required extensive maritime travel at rates unseen and and they would see a lot of a lot of fish on the ocean
2: John do your arms hurt (laughs) from reaching so hard (laughs) (laughs) love you
0: i'm not gonna lie (laughs) i did read a passage about you know the maritime travel before i wrote it so you know what fishy does have to do uh with whatever nerdy stuff john just pointed out (laughs) sorry i just think no it's perfect all right moving on oh (laughs) The 8th century BCE marks the transition out of the Dark Ages into archaic Greece. It was an extraordinary period. Um, doc points for the colonization, however, and also add points for doc imagery in addition to the fish imagery. Nice. Thank you. Anyways, okay, so this was an extraordinary (laughs) period for poets, especially. Um, We say this because this is when we witness great strides in the development of Greek culture, and most importantly, the advent of the written word, Uh, a new opportunity of which both Hesiod and Homer took advantage of. Their composition styles, however, stayed true to the oral tradition that dominated the preceding centuries. All that really changed was the possibility of recording and preserving poetry in a more or less fixed form. To sum it all up, the 8th century gave birth to the Greek literary tradition with both Homer and Hesiod at the front of it, which is kind of why they're called the daddies of the Greek literary tradition. Fathers. I would never call Hesiod daddy. Homer's daddy. We'll talk about Daddy a little bit later, but for now, let's focus back on Hesiod and what he wrote. That is, as we now know and appreciate, what the Greek literary tradition preserved for us. In addition to some misogynistic fragments, uh, Hesiod has two works that survived in full the aforementioned Theogony and Works and Days. Why are we hyping this up so much? Why is the Theogony so important? Well, consider it kind of like a master post. Hesiod took a bunch of local traditions and organized them into one narrative, focusing mostly on the gods. The Greek word, theogonia, means genealogy of the gods, but this really isn't our focus today. We're going to look at what came before the gods. The world. Before we get into its contents, it's worth mentioning that Hesiod's account of Earth's creation is typically seen as the standard Greek conception. Here on Cyril Valgaris' podcast, however... Nothing is taken for granted, which is why we'll be challenging this idea of Hesiod as the Greek standard by comparing and contrasting his version with competing myths. So, let's dive right in, and without further ado, Hesiod's Theogony. I'll start this bitch off. In the beginning, there was chaos, which the Greeks envisioned as a kind of chasm. Creation to the Greeks um, was a world chasm, if you will. (laughs) orgasm, <laughs> world orgasm. anyway, oh, thank you, uh, chaos was not anthropomorphic uh, in the way that we are used to in Greek mythology, meaning he does not appear in human-like form. Interestingly enough, this image of chaos recalls the book of Genesis in my eyes more so than it does the pages of Homer, Ovid, and the like. He sees chaos as biblical in the sense that it resembles a sort of blob of like earthy air, so not only did it not look like a human, it didn't look like anything. The word chaos is absolutely fascinating to me and has been ever since I was young. And it's a word unlike any other when it comes to its definition. To define the word is to look all around you, put pen to paper, and try to describe everything that isn't there. It describes a what not rather than a what was. When I was searching up definitions of chaos as it appears in the beginning pages of He See It in Genesis 1-2, the word Order came up came up a lot. Uh, These definitions seem to express the same idea that chaos was the thing that preceded the ordered universe. Chaos was the antithesis of order. But I just want to say, I don't think chaos was disorder. Fuck Miriam Stan Webster (laughs) defines disorder as a state in which everything is out of order. But before creation, there was nothing to be out of order in the first place. Chaos, I have decided, is instead the absence of order. What I want us to keep in mind moving forward, especially when we talk about Roman foundational myths, does creation have to mean order? It seems simple to me and not in a good way. So yeah, just some humor, hubris on the brain for you. Take it or leave it. For now, let's be simple and say that order began with light and darkness. From chaos came Nix and Erebos. From light and darkness came Himera and Aether. Himera being day and Ether being like upper air kind of like a sky but not the sky who we will meet in a moment ether essentially fills the space between the upper dome of the sky and the myths of the earth-bound air and if you don't get the picture don't worry i don't either (laughs) i don't know about you guys um point is from chaos we receive the basic ingredients for the universe we all know and tolerate the stage has been set for well earth and we know her as Gaia. She was to be the unshakable foundation of all immortals. Gaia, sweet Mother Earth, gave birth to Uranus, an unshakable standing place for the blessed immortals as well. The starry sky who covers Gaia all over, matching her every dimension. And this is such a beautiful and breathtaking image, spoiled absolutely rotten by the mother-son dynamic implied in how she <laughs> birthed him. Um. Turns out, chaos was just a black hole wherein sweet home Alabama played faintly into the void <gasps> on an eternal loop.
1: <laughs> oh my god! Oh
0: my god! Indeed. Speaking of, it's worth pointing out that chaos did not birth Nyx, Erebus, Himera, or Ether the way that Gaia birthed Uranos. He kind of just spit them out. <laughs> <laughs> In the beginning, there was chaos, who said, spitters are quitters, and it was good.
2: (laughs) I'm so sorry. (laughs) I'm I'm speechless. The the, the point we want to get across
0: (laughs) is that the role of chaos in creation is to be replaced. Uh, This is the first instance of a monumental succession in Greek mythology, but I believe it's the last of its kind. We witness no panic on behalf of chaos. And maybe it's because he's not anthropomorphized and thus lacks the capacity for human feelings such as panic. Or maybe because the void can only inflict existential dread, not experience it. Um, The succession we witness with chaos is simple. It's the myth. One thing came after another thing. The qualities and instances of succession we will see moving forward in myth that includes panic and existential dread are what drives the myth and this is when at least for myself myth becomes a story and before we talk a little more about Gaia and Uranus, there are two more primordial gods one we were a little confused about and one we'll work through together this is also when Tartarus was created something that may be familiar to y'all I mean, it's been a hot hecking minute since I've read Percy Jackson, but I think this was in it. Um, If y'all were fans, I know Leia wasn't and it shows.
2: Thank you. (laughs) No, I've never read Percy Jackson in my life. Oh, come on. I don't want to offend the Percy Jackson stans, but the
0: Percy Jackson stans are.
2: Yeah. Pretend I didn't say anything. (laughs) Yeah. We love you.
0: Percy Jackson stans. We never doubt it. Do we? Sermo podcast loves <laughs> Percy Jackson and the Percy Jackson community. We're allies. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Even if you don't know his existence as a Greek primordial god, we are all familiar with the space he takes up and what he symbolizes spiritually. Tartarus is ex- the exact opposite of Uranus. He was the inverted dome beneath the earth. He would eventually become a dungeon of torment for the wicked who committed outrage against the gods. Uh, And this dungeon was located in the depths of the underworld. And this association with death and punishment certainly recalls Christian ideals of the afterlife. That is, if I go against the gods and if I die, I will be forced to pay the price. Uh, but there's a group of entities who live there, rent fucking free. Let me tell you that much. Um, Tartarus was the prison to the Titans. That is the group of gods born from Gaia. And I went on a really interesting journey at two a.m. last night. So I was going on Wikipedia and to look at like Tartarus and like you know who's there, like what's going on. Um, and I found some information that suggested that Apollo lived. There for a year. And I was like, wait, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Like Apollo was never in Tartarus. Like, that's that's silly. How how is that possible? Um, and then I was like, oh, wait, never mind. Like Leto intervened. We stand Leto by the way. And then it was like he lived, and oh, and then I found something that said he just lived as a mortal for a year. And then I realized that. I was looking at Rick Rorden lore. (gasps) No. (laughs) Yeah. I'm such a serious idiot. (laughs) (laughs) I was, I, it was. If if you're you're reading like, holy shit. (laughs) I don't remember this. (laughs) If you're my professor and you're listening right now. No, you're not. (laughs) You know, you're not. Swiftly kick my ass into the depths of Hades, please. <laughs> anyway, it would have been a cool story, though.
1: It would have been a cool story. Apollo's study abroad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my oh, my God.
2: When he, he comes back and he's like, actually, it's pronounced Tartaros. <laughs> Oh my! Now, God, everyone made fun you of me after understood. I studied abroad in Hungary, and I pronounced Budapest as Budapest for like a year afterwards. Is <laughs> what's the right way? Budapest. I said, "Why are you laughing at me? I'm right."
0: Stop booing me. I'm right. Exactly. So anyway, yeah, back to my new home. Uh, yeah, the Titans were booted into Tartarus after a big war with the Olympians called the Titanom. Titanom. Titanom.
2: Titana Mackie? <laughs> Titana titty. I. The t- titty. T- titty. Titty Mackie. Titty, titty Mackie. Titty,
0: titty Mackie. Yeah. I'm going to call it that That's from now on. Titty Mackie. Let's get to the last primordial god who confused the fuck out of us. Am I right in saying that? Yeah. Who is it? I can't ruin it yet. Oh. I'm sure no. I'll be confused. We're okay. already confused. We don't know who it is. Okay. Exactly. Perfect. Perfect. I know. I know. Okay. Um, actually there was no introduction. His name is Eros. Oh, um, it was Eros who confused the fuck out of us. Um, because, Absolutely. you know, cause we know Eros best as the son of Aphrodite. He's the God of sexual desire, right? So now we're a little turned around. Welcome to g- mythology for real. Uh, so we have Eros, this little Cupid man's bow and arrows in the ass type beat. And then we have a second Eros, the literal primordial God coming into existence alongside, you know, Earth and heaven and time. So here is how I make sense of it. If you're going to create a universe, you're going to have to.
2: F- Fuck. You're going to have to measure in it.
0: <laughs> you're going to have to book a couple. Uh, can I say this? Dick appointments. Dick appointments. You're going to have to book a couple dick appointments. You're going to have to smash, basically. If you want more shit, you're going to have to have some sex. So when we look at it that way, I mean, like, of course Eros is there, right? He must be there. Gaia can show face all she wants, but nothing else is going to come after her if she doesn't screw her son. And that's where Eros comes in. Thanks, Eros. We'll blame it on necessity, which is kind of what I'm getting at. Sex as an obligation. And in this context, at the advent of the world, Eros is the god procreation. Eros is the facilitator of this biblical notion um, that is, you know, ingrained into my mind for whatever reason of be fruitful and multiply. Have sex to reproduce. Have sex to populate the world you were blessed with. Multiply. Now, I don't know about you. But the word multiply is so unsexy, I would like to tip my hat to whoever was able to get it on after that. And no, I was on a math kid, but that's not the point. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, let's get back to doing the do, because we still have another Eros to account for. And this, this is where things get fun. It's when the world becomes comfortable in its skin that sex becomes more than just procreation. More world means more indulgence. More existence means more living, more experiencing. There must have been this process of seeing yourself in the grand scheme of this new universe and daring to ask things of it. Risking the hubris of wanting your heart to do more than just be. Craving meaning and creating it by transcending your creation. This is how mortals become more than just their lifespan. Seeing more, wanting more, craving more. It's beautiful. It's so human. It's nearly divine. It's desire. Everybody, meet Eros. No longer the god of procreation. Eros is now the god of more. Desire is wanting more. And sex is making more. And what is more? Love. I mean tits. Go on.
1: (laughs) We were going to have to go back to the titty mackie eventually.
2: (laughs) I don't even know what to say.
0: Yeah. Okay, uh, yeah, you know what? It's sappy, but love. Love is more. Love Um, and tits.
1: Of tits.
0: (gasps) yeah moving on um eros may we meet him at the dawn of humanity or in the middle of it all is always the god of reproduction but of what that my friends is where the distinction lies and your answers may differ from my own in fact i hope they do eros embodies a duality that we often see in mythology and it's frustrating because you know it's often contradictory um But it's also incredibly fascinating. And Eros is related to one of these figures of contradiction who we'll meet very soon. Um, You know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So now Hesiod has introduced us to all the primordial gods. So what comes next? Like I said, Eros has arrived and thus it's time for Gaia to get busy with her son, Aranos, who is decidedly an absolute dick and soon will pay the price for and with exactly that. Nothing like some good old retributive <laughs> <laughs> justice, an eye for an eye, a dick for a dick. So what the fuck is up, Kyle? What's his problem? Well, Ranos is giving off serious deadbeat daddy vibes. He was allegedly the first to think of shameful dealing. And, you know, just going back to the Bible for a second, <laughs> this designation of shame is like very Genesis. Adam and Eve were not only kicked out of the Garden of Eden for, you know, their crime of eating forbidden fruit from the Tree of Life, but they were shamed through their nudity, primarily. So in this way, I think that shame is truly primordial. More hubris on the brain for you. Gaia kept on popping out all these kids, and he was not grateful. He thought they were ugly, <laughs> um, <laughs> ugly as fuck. So he, he stuffed them back into Gaia, who, you know, was obviously in pain. Uh, Gaia was suffering and her children wanted to help. And one in particular offered to carry out a plan that would truly be the catalyst for the Greek mythological world we all know and adore. Gaia quickly whipped up some gray flint to make a sickle, kind of like a scythe uh that the grim reaper carries or the thing that farmers use use to reap grain i believe john
1: yes it absolutely (laughs) is we have some really cool um evidence of like stone sickles going all the way back to the neolithic and i just think it's excellent when you when you run them the sickle through the grain like over time it polishes the sickle and you get these really cool like very very crystalline very beautiful very shiny sickles out of it anyways moving on
2: yee 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 that was good
0: thank you for this for the sickle facts
1: yes and stone sickles were actually used for a very long time i know we have this stupid like metal progression thing of like oh the stone age the iron age but iron age and onwards um greeks and romans were definitely using stone sickles so okay now we're moving on now we're
2: moving on on.
0: (laughs) it's a reaping device and boy are we gonna see just exactly how much it can reap so one of the Titans, named Kronos, the one who offered his help in the first place, takes the sickle from his mother and waits for his father to come and have sex with Gaia. Remember, they're inside of Gaia. Once Uranos is doing exactly that, Kronos takes the sickle and with his right hand cuts off his dad's dick. Kronos castrated Uranus.
1: Wait, wait. Is castration the right word for dick cutting? This is a very academic question.
2: Didn't he also cut his digging the balls? balls off too? Dick and balls. So oh, I'm, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> you Did I forget to mention, to mention that he cut part. the balls too?
2: Yeah. Sorry. Let me go back. It's called a panectomy. So he panectomizes. No, he cuts <laughs> off the balls too. Obviously.
1: So he connectomizes and castrates. Dick and balls, two for one combo.
0: So, oh, fuck. If you cut off the dick only, it's not a castration?
1: No, it's a panectomy.
0: Okay, well, I'm really sorry that I don't know what the literal (laughs) sky is working with, okay? Like, I don't know. (laughs) Point is, whatever's down there gets chop-chopped. Wait, are you,
1: are you telling me that there's a possibility that Oranos just put his balls right into Gaia?
2: No. No. <laughs> no. no. No, please. I'm quitting have the podcast. <laughs> mercy. John, have mercy. <laughs>
0: point is, whatever was... <laughs> you know what? Maybe we should feel shame. Maybe Adam and Eve, you know, maybe they were onto something. Um, yeah, whatever Cronus put inside. Uh, no, no, not. Oh, no. I mean, it's not and it's not incest. Like, I mean, like she's already screwing her son. Um, whatever Uranus puts inside of Gaia gets chopped. And we're going to go we're going to move on and say, why do we care with what hand he committed this heinous yet hilarious act? Well, there's this idea that we see shared across many Mediterranean mythoi that left equals bad. Do you hear that? Science kids? Left brain looking ass? (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. I don't want to. You're very welcome here. Um, But some people thought that left equals bad. And, you know, going back to Eve, she was born from Adam's right rib. Hector, the Trojan prince and hero whose name alone makes me want to cry, <sighs> vows to protect Troy, his home, with his right hand. And, okay, I just have to say, it's funny that Kronos uses his right hand. And, like, it's worth noting because he really isn't a hero. <laughs> I mean, he goes on to experience that that same almost karmic torture of intergenerational violence um, and panics over the threat of succession. Uh, This is when Zeus triumphs over him, uh, no matter how hard um, Kronos tried to push it off. But now we have a lot of stuff um, from this castrated or whatever you want to call it, from this penis that is no longer attached to the sky, Oranos, uh, and a few drops of blood from Gaia, we receive the following. We get the Furies, who ironically exist to punish uh, patricide and other killings of those blood-related to you. Um, and we also get Aphrodite. Um, perhaps you've seen that painting, The Birth of Venus, by that Italian guy, um,
2: uh, bot- Botticelli. Is that it? <laughs> yeah, Botticini. <laughs> Bocconcini. <Bacancini. laughs> it's my favorite cheese.
0: <laughs> um, so yeah, kind of like that. Beautiful nude goddess emerging from the shore. Her name quite literally means sea foam. Cute. <laughs> um, we're gonna move on, but of course there is no escaping Aphrodite for long. So that is Hesiod for you folks. Yes, he is seen as the Greek standard for how the world was created. Not too shabby, but remember, don't take anything for granted. As we look at more creation myths and you stumble upon others on your own, don't hesitate to compare, contrast, and form your own opinion. And this goes for everything we talk about on this podcast, of course. Was the world built in a day? Depends on who you're talking to. We can say with total certainty, however, that Rome was not built in a day. So let's look at some Roman foundation myths. Roman history would be nothing without one man's in particular. And his name is Titi Livius. He was also known as Livy. And while I'm not a huge Rome or history gal, I must concede and say that Livy is the cutest fucking name I've ever heard in my entire life. And it is, in fact, on my baby name list. I mentioned this in a TikTok over the summer called Before the Common Era Baby Names. Uh, I'm just gonna say it bears repeating. I probably won't be allowed to breed, but if you like <sighs> the name Livy, I'm taking applications. Leia was to here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: Yes. And I literally <laughs> met a girl named Livy. Really? She walked into the class U lounge. If you're listening to this, Livy. Text me. Hello. She doesn't have my number. She <laughs> she walked with Lamp. She said, My name is Livy. And I said, This is the place for you. <laughs> um fantastic. <laughs> yes. You would. Yeah. Duh. Yeah. As long as as long as you like it. Duly noted. John, what about you?
0: <laughs> would you name your kid Livy?
1: Unfortunately, I'm gonna have to name my kid Virgil.
0: Not okay. fired. Well, we'll get into that as well. Oh, my God. Okay. I had this pregnant friend, and she was on this, like, Facebook Yummy Mummy page, or, like, future Yummy Mummy page, um, where all of them were, like, talking about, like, what to name their kid. And one of them was Virgil, and I asked, how did they spell it? Because there's two ways to spell, you know, Virgil. Mm -hmm. And... And only one correct way. Okay. Divisive. <laughs> Go ahead. It's with an E. You know?
1: Vir- vir- virgilius Morrow. That's that's the name.
0: Okay. I don't, I don't think, it's I not don't think I...
1: Virgilius Morrow. Like, it's not man-gilius Morrow. That's not... <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's what is the name? Latin jokes! <laughs> We're so V-I-R, is man oh
0: um. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's funny that I like fun. that <laughs> honestly if you want to name your child Virgil go ahead
1: all I'm saying is that if you name your child Virgil with an I you are not a yummy mummy you are a yummy dummy oh, oh my god <laughs> Dude, i just give you been, whiplash.
0: Been on for way too long. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Moving on. Born in Padua to a well-off family, we're told that Livy lived from 59 BC to 17 CE. When he grew up, he skirt-skirted his way to Rome, where he became best buds with Emperor Augustus, though he opted out of political endeavors in favor of literary labors. And thank fuck he did, because our dear Livy wrote a shit ton, and we are positively elated to report that his works have survived. His greatest history of Rome is called Ab Urbe Condita, which consisted of a whopping 142 books. It spanned from the legendary founding of the city all the way down to the rule of Augustus. Today, of course, we will be focusing on the former. I would like to read a passage from my Oxford companion because it sums Livy up perfectly or at least my conception of him, um, before John, you know, gives us a little more of a rundown.
1: I know nothing about Livy. Go on.
0: It's okay, you're going to be perfect. (laughs) The work, Ab Urbe Condita, opens with an introduction to which Livy explains his purpose to commemorate the deeds of the leading nation of the world, to describe the men and mode of life that had raised Rome to greatness, and the decline of morals which brought about the troubles of the first century CE, so that his readers may draw therefrom the appropriate lessons. His general attitude is thus an ethical one. Kind of bizarre for a historian, is it not? Because, <laughs> you know, as I see it, if a historian's objective is anything other than completely objective, things become pretty sus, not gonna lie. And even without this ethical attitude, posited to us by our Oxford chum uh, and as we we're catching on to Livy wasn't necessarily your typical historian and this is saying a lot considering he lived during a time when there was no such thing as a typical historian yet. Um, yeah so John Leia, you're the Rome people the history people what's up what are your thoughts on Livy?
1: Is I'm gonna good? apologize in advance if any of this is wrong I do do own things, but I am not a historian of historiography, so my knowledge of Livy is really as good as yours, Jack. But, <laughs> mm, mm, I wouldn't say that there's no such thing as a typical historian at this point. That would just be patently untrue. Um, there's a very, very um, established um, historical tradition at this point, of course, You know, the Latin mode of writing histories was still suffering from an inferiority complex at the time, but there was definitely um, a very strong historical tradition at this point. And this is where I'm going to actually point out why Livy might be a little bit different from your typical historian. The thing with Livy is that he doesn't just take an ethical standpoint. Taking an ethical standpoint isn't that unfamiliar to people. If anyone here has ever read, like, Sallust or Polybius... They're all about like, oh, the, the mode of history, the point of history is that we have to learn from our ancestors and adopt what they did right. You know, it's always very moralizing at this point. Um, there's a very strong moralizing tendency. What separates Livy really is that he tends to be very um, neutral about his sources. Um, for in, in his first kind of um, book, He basically says, okay, um, I don't know how much of what I'm writing is true. I don't know which version of the facts is legit. I'm just going to give you all of the facts together. Um, And you get to decide for yourself um, which parts of the facts are true. Um, The interpretation is up to you. He collects different things and he presents them. In fact, in some way, you can argue that this is the most objective thing you could do. But yeah, that's very different from most... um, historians in Rome. Um, I'm gonna take the example of Dionysius of Halicarnasus um, for a bit of a spin, I know, I know not, not exactly the exact same circumstances as Livy, but it's fine. We can ignore that. Um, Dionysius of Halicarnassus is very, very careful at all times to basically contextualize everything he says because he writes like a competing foundational history of Rome. In the context of what other historians say, he's very, very careful to be like, oh, I got this from here, and I agree with this person, but I disagree with this person, this is why. It's not perfect modern historiography by any means, but it's a lot closer to what we would consider like a careful sort of peer-reviewed cross-read kind of quote-unquote real scholarship, whereas Livy acts more of like as a a collector of folklore in a sense
0: for example. Like a mythological element to it. Yeah, yeah. Kind of like has he it as he gathered you know, traditions about the gods. Yeah. And he just put it all into one narrative.
1: In, in a sense, that's what he's doing. Um, Like, Livy, in a way, is kind of more of a cure... He's more of an editor, in a sense, than perhaps maybe a historian, but he obviously does a bit of both. He doesn't let his opinion be unheard. Um, and this is actually really interesting when we kind of get into the um, actual telling of the foundation of Rome myth, which um, Livy and Dionysius of Halicarnassus again have two competing versions.
0: So where did Rome come from? I'm gonna dare to start before Livy and begin with Virgil, who I am on record calling, and I quote, a very sexy boy who wrote real good. Daddy Homer passed on the torch to this very sexy boy to which Virgil took the torch from Homer and then some. <laughs> no tea, no shade. Um, I'm also on record saying that Virgil is pretty good but Homer trash. Um, <laughs> however, uh, like with Hesiod, I must concede once more. Um, while I am not necessarily Virgil's biggest fan uh, mostly because it's fun not to be. Uh, Virgil writes perhaps uh, one of the best episodes in all of Greek and Roman literature. Book two of Virgil's Aeneid, The Fall of Troy. It's the story of a tragic ending that gives birth to a new beginning. With chaos, there was an absence of order. And now with these foundation myths, there is disorder. Uh, there is something lost that must be found again. As I was reading over some lecture notes about Virgil's retelling of Troy's demise, my professor in first year called it chaos, which is funny because, you know, we have come full circle. This heartbreak and sense of profound loss, we feel reading this episode,
2: I'm right. Like you guys agree that it's a heartbreaking episode, correct? Well, absolutely. I cried so many times when I was, um, I was translating it for a class actually last semester I cried so much. (laughs) This heartbreak and the sense of profound loss we feel reading this episode
0: may very well have something to do with how connected one may feel to the outcome of the Trojan War after engaging with the relevant literature. We have already met all the players and we have already endured the game in many ways. We have loved and we've lost. (sighs) Boy, have we lost. So where exactly does this profound emotional response come from? Well... I'm very excited to introduce to you um, Eric Auerbach, Uh, my very own Erwin Panofsky, um, as John geeked out on last time. (laughs) And it was amazing. Thank you. Literary critic Eric Auerbach wrote a brilliant book that I literally never shut up about called Mimesis, The Representations of Reality in Western Literature. The book begins with an essay about the Homeric craft, something that Virgil, let's say, mastered. (laughs) Um, this only corroborates the point I made earlier about Homer and Hesiod being placed at the forefront of the literary tradition. Um, and in this essay, he actually refers to an episode in the Odyssey, the one where Yerklia, his maid, recognizes a disguised Odysseus by the scar on his leg. And there's a digression to how he got the scar. And, um, I would like to read a quote that lives in my head, rent free, that pinpoints where this emotional response comes from. And it changed forever how I read Homer. He says that the destiny of Homeric heroes is clearly defined, who, and I quote, wake every morning as if it were the first day of their lives. Are you kidding me? How incredible is <laughs> Holy shit, man. It was a game changer for me. About the element of suspense that kind of started this whole thing, Auerbach tells us is very slight uh, in Homer. Nothing in their entire style is calculated to leave the reader or hearer breathless. The digressions are not meant to keep the reader in suspense, but rather to relax the tension. So this essay is actually comparing, we're we're always going to go back to the Bible, perhaps we talked about more about the Bible than anything else in this episode. Um, He's actually comparing the craft of Homer that I am claiming that uh, Virgil, you know, shares that craft um, with the Bible. Um, And he's essentially comparing the episode of Odysseus's scar with the sacrifice of Isaac. That is the binding of Isaac. Um, and you know, he's talking about these Homeric characters who live every day, like it's the first day of their lives. That's Homeric myth for you. And, and I think that that's the source of where we find all this sorrow and this, you know, profound emotional response. And on the other hand, he claims that the way that the Bible is written is the complete opposite and that you're never going to know what was going on is in Isaac's mind, as he discovered that he was going to be sacrificed to the God, to, to the gods. ooh, gotta go back to Hebrew school. He was going to be sacrificed to God uh, by his father, Abraham. And, you know, as a kid back in Hebrew school, that's a very perturbing story. And I guess in some way I've always kind of thought about, you know, what was going through his head. Um, and I, I think that's just so utterly fascinating. You know, It's interesting because we can essentially feel that same sorrow reading the Bible sometimes. Um, So I think there's more to it, obviously, but it's a brilliant essay. Read it. Um, So there we have it. So why are Homer and Virgil so delightful to read and invoke a strong emotional response despite us already knowing what's going on? externalization delight in physical existence a physical existence brought to the foreground in which the reader or hearer joins these characters who live every day like it's the first day of their lives in book two of the aeneid we are priam we are hector we are aeneas and we are troy burning to the ground the mighty are falling and we are falling with them so yeah that's uh that's my Mises, eric our back for you uh anywho uh oh yeah, what that happens made me to Aeneas? Cry. <laughs> You're are you crying? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I told you
2: book two of
0: the <laughs> makes me cry, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so essentially, if my uh memory does not fail me, what happens at the end of book two is Aeneas grabs his father, throws him on his back like a backpack. Um carries his family. I believe he had lost his wife though. And it's sad for her and it's sad for uh Dido. He's about to get fucked over real good by that prick. <laughs> um very it, it, it's actually quite tragic. I'm trying to make light of it because I don't wanna I don't wanna get sad. So um that's Virgil and you know Aeneas then goes on to, you know, find Rome. Uh, but obviously a lot of stuff happens uh, before, after that, and that's why I'm gonna pass it on to John.
1: Okay. Um. So before we start, um, <laughs> I-, I have a proposition for you. What? what? Dora the oh. Explore. Well, no, don't. Is don't do really it. just a modern day retelling? Don't of the Aeneid.
2: Don't of the Aeneid. Stop. When does Dora the Explorer's hometown get destroyed in flames? Did I miss one?
1: And No, I'm not going to elaborate. <laughs> would like it if you did. <laughs> okay, so you want to hear about what happens after Aeneas. More
0: than anything.
1: Well, that's going to require a little bit of going back and maybe rewriting the way Aeneas is represented in Virgil. So I'm going to do this by basically giving us the very bare bones rundown of what happens in two contrasting um, stories of the uh, Roman foundation myth. First of all, I'm going to talk about Livy, who gives the very traditional, you know, Aeneas goes on to, to be in Latium. He's there. Um, some generations pass. And then we end up with um, Numitor and Amulius, um, who are ruling Latium, which is great. Um, as you know, the King Numitor, the wise King Numitor, gets deposed by his shitty brother Amulius. And Amulius is just a bad guy. He's, he's not great. Why? Um, you'll see. You'll see. Um, Ooh, so basically, okay. Numitor had a daughter, Rhea Sylvia. Having now staged a coup on his brother and assumed the throne is like, hey, I'm gonna make Rhea Sylvia a vestal virgin. So yes, vestal virginity does um, predate Rome as a city, but yeah, I'm gonna make her a vestal virgin so that um, my brother's genetic line does not go on. She gets turned into a vestal virgin, but then Mars comes down from, from the sky, I guess, from the heavens, and it's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna rape you now, and, and then, and then Rhea Silvia is pregnant, um, at least, um, as Livy puts it in the English translation, um, named Mars as the father of her doubtful offspring, whether actually so believing, or because it seemed less wrong if a god were the author of her fault takes a bit of a position here where he's like, it's probably doubtful that a god actually had had her child. Um,
0: but is it more right if a god does it?
1: I don't know. It, it's weird. It, the whole thing is weird. And, and then you have the whole like Amolius finding out, being like, no, we must banish the children. And, and then they supposedly leave them to go die. But they, as you know, they wash up among the seven hills of Rome. And then there's this guy, Faustulus, and um, there's a quote-unquote she-wolf, who Livy... Here here Livy's taking a position. He's like, the she-wolf probably just means Laurentia, a.k.a. Faustulus's wife, because she-wolf is also kind of like slang for prostitute. But either a furry uh,
2: or mm-hmm. a prostitute,
1: there's um, mm-hmm. these mm-hmm. children.
2: I was wondering mm-hmm. how long it was going to take for us to get to furries. Oh, here
1: we God anyways um Good that's Lord. kind of um the story that livy tells us then everyone knows the rest um they grow up and then they found rome but then they get into a fight and then remus dies yeah um
0: remus is I like what if we city? name this city
2: ream that's or exactly ream. no i don't
1: <laughs> <laughs> actually um just so you know um if <laughs> if remus had won it would probably be called a remuria
0: so, um, I think Reem is more That's funny. way less funny than Reem.
1: <laughs> or Reem, that's <laughs> Just consider it.
0: Okay.
1: <laughs> of Halicarnassus. Oof. Okay. As I've said before, not the same guy as Livy, not the same circumstances as Livy but close enough. Dionysius of Halicarnassus takes a very different approach and he basically says, "Okay. Actually, no. This is bullshit, and I think it's bullshit based on... And then he name-drops a bunch of historians that came before him, and it's very pretentious, and I guess if you were a scholar, you would understand, but I am not an ancient scholar. I am an ancient dumbass. Um, <laughs> <laughs> No. And so, um, I don't really know what's going on, but essentially here he says, um, and I'm quoting now from Roman Antiquities, For Cephalon of Gerges, a very ancient writer... Says that the city was built in the second generation after the Trojan War by those who had escaped from Troy with Aeneas. And he names, as a founder of it, Romus, who was the leader of the colony and one of Aeneas's sons. Um, He adds that Aeneas had four sons: Ascanius, Euryleon, Romus, and Remus. What? That's what Dionysus of Halicarnassus says, but he, um, the astute scholar he, he is, he presents several different possibilities for what could have happened. Um, there's that, where essentially Aeneas just had like four kids and one of them was named Romus. Um, there's another version where he subscribes to the, okay, a few generations passed, and Numitor and Amulius do the thing. In this version, he very explicitly like, Mars didn't do anything, but it's in character, historically, given Amolius' warlike and evil inclinations, that Amulius probably dressed up as, like, a warrior, essentially, to conceal his identity, and then went and raped um, our poor, poor Rhea Silvia, who actually he gives a different name to. He actually calls her Ilia. He consults a bunch of historians. According to the Syracusan historian... By that, he means Antiochus of Syracuse. Um, apparently, there was a man named Morgus, who I keep reading as Morgs, and I think it's very funny that Morgs could found a city. Anyways, when Morgus reigned in Italy, a man came to him who had been banished from Rome. His words are these. When Italus was growing old, Morgs reigned. <laughs> in his reign, there came a man who had been banished from Rome. His name was Cyclos, and according to the Syracusan historian, an ancient Rome is found even earlier than the Trojan War. However, as he left it doubtful whether it was situated in the same region where the present city stands, or whether some other other place happened to be called by this name, I too, and this is um Dionysus of Halicarnassus is speaking, can form no conjecture. But as regards to ancient settlements in Rome, I think that what has already been said is sufficient. So here we have quite a few contrasting um, ideas of when Rome was founded, who Rome was founded by, and even one that says possibly Rome, or at least the the conception of Rome, might in fact predate the Trojan War.
0: I don't like that one. Thank you, John. (laughs) Thanks, John. I have a question for you, John. We have kind of, you know, touched on the fact that, you know, Livy isn't your typical historian. He has a, you know, he has an ethical view, and he also kind of comes across as, like, kind of mythological sometimes. So I guess my question is, is Livy more, less, or just as mythological as Virgil?
1: Um, Conventionally, less mythological than Virgil. Virgil is just writing a book. Um, (laughs) I I know that's that's a bit of a reductive view of... (laughs) <laughs> someone that many people would consider one of the greatest poets in the world, but the Aeneid is just a book. Um, very mythological, I think, in character and um, content, but he is just a book. Now, Livy, I think, is much more interesting because I have a controversial opinion about historiography, and that's that all history is inherently a myth. Ooh, sexy. All history is storytelling, first of all, obviously. All yeah. history is narrative. The thing is, you cannot have um, any version of history that is quote-unquote pure description. That is not possible. That's not a technical possibility. That's just not a possibility even theoretically. History is a shoreline paradox. That is, the more finely you measure it, the longer the sort of length of history gets, and it grows so infinitely. There is no cap on how much history there can be. And there is no way, really, that you can encompass all of history into a coherent narrative. It is impossible. Historical evidence and historical lives are, by essence, chaotic. There is no order to them. So any, any historiography, modern or ancient, any attempt to really create a coherent narrative about what is happening, whether that is by postulating a theory or by saying basically that this happened, Any attempt to order the events, any attempt to place people who lived in categories, will inevitably end up being narrative. It is, in its own way, a form of cultural storytelling that gives us existential reassurance, the same way any ideological myth would. Pure description is in itself a fallacy. We tend to very much believe in the idea that objectivity is possible. And ob- objective is a word that we've been even used here on this podcast, much to my own personal distaste. But historiography is a cultural practice, and historiography is a performance, first and foremost. Just as, you know, any bard, pure description is a fallacy and a cultural fantasy. So in a way, Livy is mythological. And even without considering all of my weird hot takes on whether or not it's possible to do history, because I tend to hold the opinion that it's not really not, for today's sake, I will say that Livy is less mythological than Virgil because he at least purports to be treating the truth with some level of quote-unquote objectivity and quote-unquote empiricism.
0: You said that history and narrative and historiography uh, is a shoreline paradox, correct? Well... I think, to some extent, there's always going to be mythology, shall I say. Aphrodite will always be (laughs) emerging from that shore. Leia, Mm
2: -hmm. do you have an opinion? Well, I think I'm Virgil, the Aeneid specifically. We're just talking about the Aeneid here because I have really no comment on the Georgics or any of that. But um, the Aeneid, to me, is just propaganda. And I read it as such. Excellent. Majority of the time. Like, he didn't even really want to be writing it. Like, he just wanted to be writing about hills and vines and countryside stuff like that. He's like, "Ugh, my boss, my boss made me write this, <laughs> you know? And
0: who is his boss, just for clarity? Well, not really Augustus, but Augustus. <laughs> Why are you, like, what's up with, like, Augustus uh, befriending all of these, you know...
2: Do you want to go into it?
0: No, but I will say, actually, maybe a bit, because I will say, it's very interesting. I'm going to go back to Auerbach for just one minute. Um, So I said earlier that, like because, you know, you talk about propaganda, I knew it would come up. I say that Virgil and Homer share the same craft for the most part. Um, And Auerbach actually claims that Homer is a harmless liar who lied to give pleasure Whereas in terms of the Bible, the Alois in the Bible is a political liar with, and I quote, a definite end in view, lying in the interest to claim absolute authority. If we're looking at Virgil, and if we are to assume that he shares this type of, you know, craft and style with Homer, then Auerbach kind of gets it wrong. Do you think that Virgil is, you know, This political liar with a definite end in view lying in the interest to claim absolute authority. Do I? Is this is this proving our back wrong is kind of what I'm wondering and saying that, you know, they're harmless liars who lie to give pleasure and pleasure alone. Yes. Amazing. Thank you. That's Virgil, Livy and Rome Freya with Foundation Over. Let's get into the fun stuff. We're getting into libation and castration. That is, we're going to be talking about two gods that we mentioned a little bit at the beginning. Let's get divine. One, cue young god by Halsey. Grab your dildos, a bottle of wine, and forgo the glass. Because first, we will be discussing the god of your Saturday night. The second goddess is perhaps the most well-known Olympian, so to speak. We really don't know well at all. We can think of her as the goddess of your Sunday morning. <laughs> no, I will not elaborate. <laughs> she will serve <laughs> as a reminder to us that a domain sometimes literally close to our hearts does not necessarily bring us closer to comprehending the divinity that rules it. Just because a god may preside over a human experience we are all intimately familiar with does not mean that we are intimately familiar with that god. Just because we experience love does not mean we understand the goddess of love herself, Aphrodite. I mean, when has love ever been simple? I mean... Never. Tits. (laughs) (laughs) Shit. (laughs) Look, look, we are no strangers to hubris on this podcast, and in fact we encourage it. That being said, always pick your battles, thinking you know a god better than you do is too easy, in my opinion. Where is the flavor? Icarus flew too close to the sun, okay? He didn't stand on a beach and yell up to the sun all the things that Helios doesn't like about himself. We (laughs) we chose those gods because they both straddle social and divine boundaries set by the ancients themselves, as well as us folks in the 21st century. Just like we talked about last episode and have illustrated today, hopefully, what are myths, if not deeply powerful reflections of society and culture, groups of people, their traditions and ideals, and at the end of the day, (laughs) ourselves. Dionysus and Aphrodite are like mirrors turned towards the chasms of our person. The good thing about them? So long as you don't think it's a window, there's really nothing to be ashamed of. Now, I want to talk about something funny. So I just claim that Aphrodite is perhaps the most well-known, uh, you know, Olympian. I was curious, you know, because I'm an academic, um, whether that was true or not. So I asked my sister, who knows absolutely nothing about Greek mythology. Um, and I asked her, who, who do you think of first when you think of a god? Um, and she said Poseidon first because she's like strangely obsessed with the ocean. Strangely um she's the percy jackson in our house moving i don't
2: right. even understand that reference you didn't was she like a dolphin girl as a child
0: no no I'm, I'm, I'm gonna do her a favor and say no <laughs> <laughs> right off the bat um and she wasn't a percy jackson kid either percy jackson is the son of poseidon, of poseidon. yes i remember i loved him so much and i wanted to be like you know Poseidon's Son too, and there was a scene when they made the movie um Percy Jackson the lightning thief of Logan Lerman sitting at the bottom of a swimming pool so guess what I did anytime I was at a swimming oh, pool no. oh my god how many lifeguards had to rescue I don't, no, no no it was bad it was really bad I like would refuse to come up so yeah um that was my Percy Jackson phase I survived uh, but our peaked. So, we posted a story on her Finsta, asking her friends the same question. And before I tell you guys the result, who do you think the most well-known Olympian is to the common individual who didn't take their Percy Jackson phase objectively too far? I mean, is this a cop-out?
2: I would just say Zeus, right? Mm, I think it would depend on the age
1: group. I feel like older people, Zeus or Poseidon... um, Younger people, Dionysus.
2: Yeah, the young kids, the, the Gen Zs, they love Dionysus.
1: Yeah, why wouldn't they love a funny little gay boy? <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> there's absolutely no lie. Um, and there's definitely no lie in what you guys said. Um, maybe not the Dionysus part. But turns out, in our subject pool, uh, Zeus is actually the most well-known Olympian. Oh my gosh. Second to that is Athena. Oh, And I live, I loved this. Wait. So one person said Apollo. And another person said Athena, then Venus. But both finished their responses with IDKY. <laughs> um, and if that's not the most classic thing you've ever heard in your entire life, I don't know what is. Oh, and also someone said uh, Hades. Whoops. And this is Janie. Uh, Jamie. Jamie, wherever you are. (laughs) Don't be ashamed of your love for Hades. He is a monogamous king who, and I cannot stress this enough, cannot control the die. (laughs) Have you not seen that meme from John's meme page? It was like, I cannot control the die.
1: Yeah, it's like, it's the, um, you know that meme where people like, it's like blackout poetry of I cannot control the speed at which (laughs) lobsters die. <laughs> and then one of the slides is just I control lobsters.
2: <laughs>
0: so yeah. Anyway, that was our extremely academic experiment that proved me dead fucking wrong. Um, but all I know is nothing, so it's fine. I would like to make our findings peer-reviewed, however. So John and Leia, do you review this?
1: Yeah. I rate it, dude. Do you approve? <laughs> Absolutely. I approve of everything you do.
0: Oh, absolutely amazing. Great. Peer-reviewed. Go forth with this information and do so with the utmost confidence. (laughs) Moving on, let's talk about dear, dear Dionysus. He is the youngest of the Olympians, and sometimes he's not considered an Olympian at all. And, you know, I think that people who have read the Bacchae uh, would think twice before saying that because of their funeral. (laughs) um speaking of the Bacchae uh this is a play by Euripides that really captures his essence um while also telling us a good amount of his story Hacks will have you believe that this play is a tragedy a notion I have been fighting on TikTok since day one and I will never stop advocating for the truth it is a comedy (laughs) it's very funny and I would like to tell you I like to tell it to you the way I told my family about it uh when i read it for the first time three years ago and i haven't shut up about it since i'll give you a quick little version we're now in thebes women have gone wild theban women are off they're off their rockers they are in the woods having sex out of their minds just you know they're in a state of ecstasy or cool. where we will come back to um and King Pentheus is like, what the fuck is going on? Why are these women not being women? Get in the fucking oikos, like get in the house. <laughs> like <laughs> you got woman stuff to do. Um, and you see there's a new influence, there's a new god in town, Dionysus, this new Olympian. And Thebes is like, who the fuck is this i don't remember you so you're not valid uh you've never been valid you're never going to be valid so dionysus says bet and he shows up in thebes um disguised i forget what he's disguised as but essentially um he's going to help king pentheus with his problem he's going to get the women under control and restore peace to Thebes get the whole Dionysus rites out of town they don't belong there so Dionysus disguised goes to King Pentheus and somehow convinces him to dress up like one of the women and he's going to go and spy on them he's going to see what's going on and he's going to try and reason with them and so <laughs> Dionysus gets him all dolled up <laughs> totally totally a true thing that happened and he sends him off into the woods um, and his Pentheus's mother comes back and she's like look what I have she thinks she has like a little lion's head I believe on mm-hmm. the top of this stick but it was not a lion at all it was actually King Pentheus's head <laughs> And that's the punchline. That's the punchline, um, and Dionysus, you know, no longer in disguise, said, "I goofed all of you. <laughs> it was me, Dion. I know with this one line. Too late, you've known me. <laughs> you said you blew it." <laughs> So essentially, the women come out of their frenzy, they see, you know, the carnage that they inflicted, they tore King Pentheus apart, um, and Dionysus laughed through all of it, and so did we. It's fucking funny, okay? That's a, that that's not a tragedy. That's a comedy. So there's one figure I did not mention, and her name is Smelly, and we're going to look at her myth. Um, What happened to Smelly, Dionysus' mother, to kick off this Theban aversion to the divine ranking of Dionysus, this new god? Because Thebes has a bone to pick with him. So where did this bone come from? See, Zeus fell in love. Her name is actually, sorry, her her name is actually uh, Semele, (laughs) I I believe. I've only ever called her Smelly. I almost forgot to (laughs) say her real name. But yeah, we call her Smelly in this house. So, see, Zeus fell in love with this this woman, Smelly, and promised anything she would ever want. Um, And of course, his wife Hera, queen of the gods, was incredibly jealous. And this is how 110% of myths start. And you simply cannot argue with the numbers. (laughs) Hera disguised herself as an old lady or a friend and convinced Smelly to ask Zeus if he would appear to her in his true form uh zeus promised her anything so he couldn't say no so one night he showed up in her bridal chamber in all of his power and glory i don't know why i'm laughing (laughs) (laughs) and unfortunately smelly died (laughs) (laughs) um from fright or lightning or whatever who knows (laughs) smelly bit the dust but oh no she was pregnant with Zeus's child at the time, and in a panic, removes the fetus from her burnt body and sews it into his thigh. And when the time comes, Zeus removed the stitches and out popped Dionysus baby. Um, so yeah, Thebes didn't really like uh dionysus because they also didn't believe that smelly was in a relationship with zeus there was always this type of you know pushback against you know what the gods were telling the people of thebes and you know they were kind of committing hubris and saying no you're not a god no smelly you're not fucking zeus you know what i mean and so dionysus had had enough of it so we fuck shit up and we laugh um (laughs) bt dubs uh this isn't the weirdest story of zeus in labor so to speak Um, And I have to say this just, you know, I mean, when he had a headache, he asked Hephaestus to help him. Uh, And he said, no prob, no prob, and chopped open his skull with an axe, as one does. This is actually what they did before Advil. Boom, (laughs) Athena, goddess of wisdom, is born. So what is Dionysus all about? Because, you know... He didn't just, you know, the women of Thebes didn't just randomly, you know, go into this state of ecstasy. This was, you know, the way that people um, worshipped Dionysus. So, where, like, what, what is his domain that would, you know, make this a part of his worship? Well, we can say for certain that wine, vegetation, festivals, orgies, nice madness. Why is orgies on there twice? <laughs> there are two stories in particular uh, that are very interesting about, you know, kind of the ideology of some of his domains. Um, one we didn't mention, he is the creator of the dildo. John, give it to us.
1: So this is um, a bit of a weird story that's attested in quite a few authors. um, Pausanias, Hyginus, etc., etc., And it's really interesting because it has so much to say about Dionysus as a, as a person and a character. Um, basically there's, okay, there's a shepherd named Prosimus and he lives near the Alcyonian Lake. Um, yeah. So basically Dionysus going to Hades um, to rescue his mother, Semele, um, Smelly. Sorry. Smelly. To rescue Smelly, um, enlists the help of this man, Prosimus, who guides him to the entrance by basically rowing him to the middle of um, the lake Alcyonian. And the reward that, he, you know, Prosimus, this horny, horny man, decides that he wants for this is the right to fuck Dionysus. He's like, oh, yeah, baby, I'll, I'll row you to the middle of the lake. So Dionysus is like, Okay, cool. So he goes down to Hades, you know. He he does his thing, and then when he comes back up, he kind of returns from like a different route, and he finds that while he was in Hades, you know, rescuing Smelly, Prosimus had died. No, he died with blue balls. He died. No, with blue what balls. happened? So I don't know. He just died. He died. He had blue balls, and he died. Fuck. So then Doctor is like, oh, you died of blue balls. Uh, that's not what happened, but you died of blue balls. Um, so I'm going to keep my promise to you, since I did promise that you got you could fuck me. No. So then he goes to the tomb of Prosimus, and he no. takes this piece of fig wood, and he carves it into the shape of a dick. <gasps> And what were you expecting? Sitting on <laughs> Prosimus' tomb, puts the dick up his ass, like the the wood dick, up his no. ass. No, 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 no. Bucks himself oh, with God. it. Like, he's pretending to ride Prosimus. Whilst
0: no, no.
2: <laughs> that is so kind.
1: <laughs> that is very kind. <laughs> he
2: really, like, he stuck to his promise. He really That's did. Really I love it.
1: That's how he invented the dildo, which actually... The revelation of a wooden phallus is like a very important part of the rituals of the Dionysian mysteries. Um, you can kind of see it in um the uh, Villa of the Mysteries. Yeah, and and you know that one really famous fresco from the Villa of the Mysteries. No. Uh, of the woman. Refresh, please. Very specific um motif that comes up over and over when it comes to Dionysian rites, and that's the revelation of the um, phallus. On that fresco, you can see um, the woman who is kind of surmised to be the initiate, kind of peeling back this nice purple um, fabric. And underneath is a basket and um, a phallus is supposed to pop out. And the whole idea is that there's a very strong connection there um, of all Dionysian mystery stuff to revealing the phallus as some sort of allegory. So yeah. um, the dildo is an important part of ritual. It really is for ritual purposes. Ooh ah, a dick,
0: essentially. All right. <laughs> the dildo, everybody. That's that is. I've never heard that story. Me That's a lot. That's a lot to handle. Um, it's really interesting. I'm just going to say really quick. It is said that uh, when Zeus birthed Dionysus, he like kind of gave him to Hermes. Uh, to, like, I guess, raise, um, and you're seeing kind of, like, Hermes pop up in, you know, what Dionysus does, like, I've never heard of a god other than Hermes go into the, go into Hades, essentially, if I'm, I, I don't know if I'm correct, but I think only Hermes had that ability, and so, you know, to hear, like, about, you know, Dionysus entering the underworld, you know, you're kind of seeing, like, like little elements of what make Hermes, what makes Hermes Hermes, in a way. Uh, also the dick thing. <laughs>
2: yeah,
0: <laughs> also the dick also thing. The dick thing. <laughs> so yeah, madness, orgies, dildos, wine. Um, he's an interesting dude. He's also kind of an other, um, and this is not hubris. You know, this is this is talked about. So essentially, you know, he's foreign he's effeminate he um is born from both uh a man and a woman a human and a god you know he's just and he's he's very interested and his essence is kind of manifests in crossing boundaries there's a word that we used before ecstasy and this is actually kind of dionysus's word It means, ecstasis, it means to be outside of oneself, outside of order, enthusiasm, and theos. The theos, the god, is inside of you. So Dionysus is bordering on things, and he actually reinforces the borders by crossing them. And a part of his rites is crossing boundaries as a human. And you do that by letting the God inside of you. You go outside of yourself. You're in ecstasy. And as you worship, the God enters you. This is the only situation (laughs) where you can, you know, let a God inside of you and cross boundaries without any serious like you know repercussions um so yeah that's Dionysus for you crazy guy um and he taught craziness to a certain extent you know it's okay to subvert order sometimes last but certainly not least let's move on to castration (laughs) let's talk about Aphrodite Let's give a quick recap on her birth. I'm going to hand this over to Leia, because Leia is the Aphrodite gal. Um, So yeah, Leia, Uwu, go ahead.
2: You okay. Yeah, we'll just jump right into it. The story of Aphrodite's birth, which we have already mentioned, you know, castration. So Uranus's genitals are thrown into the sea. And then this circle of white foam spreads around it from his... Floating dick and balls, and from it grew a girl. And that girl went to Kithara and then to Cyprus, which are actually her two main epithets. So they call her Kitherea and Kyprogonea. And if you couldn't guess who this girl is, it's Aphrodite. Ooh. They also call her Philomedea, which means genital lover quite literally, which I think is just absolutely fantastic in so many levels, because obviously, spoiler alert, she's the goddess of sex. um, And she came straight up from genitals. I just think that's so fantastic. (laughs) And so, so she, she comes onto the land at Cyprus and they said, it says in the, in the theogony, Hesiod says that Eros accompanies her. So Eros, who came before her, as we established already, Eros accompanies her. And then Himeros also attends her when she's born. And Himeros, from what I understand, is a a god of sexual desire specifically. So, you know, she's being raised here by, apparently, or being, growing up around Eros, who is love embodied, and then also this god of sexual love. So obviously, you know, it's no surprise, you know, she turned out the way that she did as the goddess of love, sex, beauty, all the good stuff. And then she joins the immortals and she becomes um a member of the the Greek pantheon. And Ooh. it's really interesting actually because that makes her that myth then makes her older and you know, by default I would say almost more senior than the entire of the Greek pantheon that we know. So Zeus, Hera, all of them. She's even older than the Titans, you could say. Or would she be a Titan? Because she comes from Uranus. It's a whole, I'm not I think
0: she would be a Titan.
2: Yeah, yeah. So there's this weird kind of tension with that. And you can see that in Homer. There's these two specific understandings of Aphrodite. There's Aphrodite, Urania, and then there's the Homeric Aphrodite. So in Homer, in the Iliad specifically, Aphrodite is the daughter of Zeus and Dione, who is um, a titan goddess. But something that I find really interesting is Dione is just the female version of the word Zeus. So she's basically (laughs) just the daughter (laughs) in Homer. She's the daughter of Zeus and female Zeus, basically. (laughs) In Homer, there's no mention of her as a titan there's no stories about her and in the Iliad um the where we see Aphrodite is she goes down to the battlefield and she tries to fight Diomedes while he's going absolutely ape shit she gets hurt she goes up back to Olympus and Zeus says ha ha ha, little girl ha ha you sweet girl what were you doing trying to fight you know fighting's not for you which is actually ridiculous when you get to when you really start to think about it and look into the history of Aphrodite, which I will not be doing right now. We'll definitely be talking about this next episode, but I'm going to spoil it. Aphrodite um, came from the the Near East, and she was originally a war goddess. But then, when she joined the Greek pantheon, she become she became just this goddess of love and sex and beauty. I don't know. I just wish they had kept that little war part with her. I mean, but you do see that a lot also with her affair with Ares. She's literally having an affair yeah. with the god of war. And that's one of like the biggest affairs, love stories, I guess, of the that Greek pantheon.
0: Well, that dynamic always intrigues me.
2: It's Like, how did that happen? Right? It's I cute. Mean, it's cute. It's quirky. So... Basically, this Dione, though, sorry, I caught sidetracked. So this <laughs> Dione, who is supposedly her mother in the Homeric stories, there's really not a lot of mention of her as a titan, and there's, like, not a lot of stories about her. She's mentioned in the Theogony, I believe, um, just as a titan, and that's it. And so the question is, like, was, quote-unquote, Homer, or whoever created these Homeric poems, were they uncomfortable with this idea that Aphrodite was technically above and superior to Zeus since yes in, yeah yeah yes exactly cuz you know in the homeric poems Zeus is supreme he's the the king of all the gods you see it like
0: jerks him off
2: absolutely in the absolutely so i'm not saying that dione was created to demote aphrodite but the way she was used with homer uh she was there to demote aphrodite Homer is cancelled. I think Homer is cancelled. Homer is cancelled. No,
0: okay, let's not be too hasty, (laughs) shall we? And I mean, he's the one who admits that she's. Whoa. No, no, (gasps) not this realization. This is horrible. This is absolutely the worst day of my life.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Fuck. Homer is cancelled. Fuck. I'm, I'm sorry. No, he's not cancelled. He is. He's cancelled. It's okay. He's not even real. It's fine. He's cancelled by This is even worse. (laughs) (laughs) So. Okay. So. As I established. So there's this Aphrodite Urania. And then there's this Homeric Aphrodite. And you're probably thinking. Well, like. How how do those two things coexist with each other in the Mm. minds of the ancient Greeks? So. I will now be bringing up Plato's Symposium. Yes. Which we all know and Woo-hoo. love. So if you uh, don't know what Plato's Symposium is, it's a little dialogue about love, basically, about Eros. And boy love. Boy love. It's very gay. Uh, would recommend to anyone. It's definitely the my favorite Plato that I've ever read. It's also the only Plato I've ever read. It's also just brilliant. It's, it's absolutely brilliant. Exactly. So there's... It's a series of speeches. So in the speech of Pausanias, he he lays out that there is Aphrodite Urania, so this heavenly Aphrodite. Obviously, Urania comes from the word uranos, so heavenly. And then there's Aphrodite pandemos, which means all the people. So these two Aphrodites exist simultaneously as these two versions of love. And so this is what Plato says. This is absolutely not what I'm saying. (laughs) Let me just give that disclaimer. (laughs) So Pausanias in Plato says that Aphrodite pandemos, the love of her, it only deals with the body and it doesn't deal with the spirit. It has nothing to do. It's just a, it's just a bodily kind of raw. It's not heavenly whatsoever. It's not heavenly. It's just sex and it's just heterosexual. Oof. Heterosexual love is Aphrodite pandemos, it's the, the act of using someone for your personal base pleasure, and there's this implicit sense of a power imbalance. I think you can guess who is being used and who has the power in a heterosexual relationship with the ancient (laughs) Greek. I won't go into that more. And then there's Aphrodite urania, which I'm quoting, not the, it does not deal with the female, but only the male. And it is, untinged with wantonness and is robuster it it is more sounds like my fan fiction (laughs) (laughs) it's got a robuster nature and larger share of mind once again quotes so aphrodite urania is only love between men Mm -hmm. men and boys yikes yikes Yikes, so this heavenly kind of love which can only come between men because you know women are gross and disgusting and ruin everything according to plato (laughs) women i love you the love is robust 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 and large like just say you hate women if pausanias through plato had said boy boy love is heavenly and fantastic and also girl girl love Is heavenly. There we go. Totally be on board. But it's so clearly, you know, here it's so clearly just fuck women. They have nothing to do with anything and they're unimportant. Obviously, we all know that girl girl love is superior.
0: Absolutely. (laughs) I have to say
2: that. Absolutely. But so, anyways, so those are the two conceptions of Aphrodite. Wow. According to Plato, at least. So,
1: what you're basically telling me is that this dichotomy paints straight people as breeders.
2: Yes. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) There's straight Aphrodite and there's gay Aphrodite and gay Aphrodite rules supreme. So, okay. now I'll tell you guys a story, one of her myths, one of Aphrodite's myths. So I want to take a myth from Homeric Hymn 5. Um, It's a story about, you know, kind of like the pain that she brings with love and how she's actually quite feared at times. So Homeric Hymn 5 starts, it says, you know, even though Zeus never laid with his adopted daughter, that's what it says. So here, this is acknowledging her Urania aspect, I suppose. But her magic did put Zeus in constant temptation. So he decides to humiliate her by making her fall in love with a mortal. Ew! <laughs> <laughs> Rose, She's going to get mortal cooties. So the, <laughs> the mortal he chooses is Anchises, Prince of the Dardanians. Also known as the Trojans, if you've all heard of them. So <laughs> Aphrodite visits Anchises on Mount Ida in the guise of a Phrygian princess. Absolute classic. She had a drip going and they have a sexy time. She, she goes, hey, let's have sex. He goes actually, wait, let me just check first. Are you a goddess? And she's like, oh no, dude, not at all. Absolutely not. She makes up this whole story to say that she's immortal. And he's like, oh, okay, awesome. You're not a goddess. Then we can have sex. And then the next morning he wakes up and she's like, psych, I'm actually Aphrodite. And Anchises quite literally shudders in fear. Like he is so afraid of this woman. He says, please don't condemn me to live as a weakling among men. Like, please. He thinks that she's going to destroy him because he had sex with her. And so I just think that's so fun and interesting that, you know, one, a like, absolutely beautiful woman comes to him and is like, hey, let's have sex. And he's like, no way. There has to be some catch. Are you a goddess? Are you going to kill me? He's actually just a simp. (laughs) Are you a goddess? Fuck. (laughs) She's like, no, Stop. Stop um but yeah so he's terrified and then you know everything's fine she doesn't hurt him at all uh, and then she gives birth to Aeneas who you may have heard of also um he's kind of important in some poems um, <laughs> I don't know none I've read so it's really interesting that Anchises is so afraid like I said because there's two things that could be so either way he's just like really wise and rightfully scared of the gods as he should be and she's actually, you know, as I mentioned, a really powerful, scary god. She's been around for longer than anyone. She's, she she's comes a- from a castrated dick. Exactly. Don't mess, with, you don't fuck you mess up. with someone who's born from a castrated dick. You just don't. Rule of thumb. God. But then there's another reading that I just think is kind of interesting, that it's like a, a psychological thing, like a no <laughs> strings attached. And he wakes up and he, uh, he finds out his aphrodite and he's just so scared of I'm catching feelings. <laughs> he's like, oh no, I just fell in love with a goddess. Whatever will I do? Um, probably the first thing, but I just wanted to mention the second one. Just I to- actually have a
0: third one. Please go. Okay, so I think that he's shuddering in fear because he knows he didn't perform his <laughs>
2: best. <laughs> oh, fantastic. So... That's Aphrodite. That's Aphrodite for now. Um, I'm really excited to go into more of her history next uh, next episode, but we'll cut it off there. That was brilliant. All right. So, guys, what did we learn today? I learned that Dionysus invented the dildo. Because I genuinely did not know that story. I don't know how. I've been a classic (laughs) teacher for four years, and I never knew that Dionysus invented the dildo.
0: I i will ever get that image out of my head <laughs> of him fucking himself on that guy's grave.
2: Oh my god! So iconic. I learned a bunch of other fun and interesting, uh, smart things as well, but that was my favorite part. John, how about you? John, hmm. I learned a lot
1: about the origin of the universe. I think, like, I'm not really a myth person whatsoever. I'm gonna come out on the record and say that. I don't know nearly enough about myths as I should as a classics major, and I don't typically care nearly as much about myths as I should. And this this episode was actually really nice, because we got to talk about a lot of earlier Foundation myths that kind of predate the Olympians, and I know that that's something that personally I don't have a lot of experience with, you know? We learned all about Chimera and Gaia and my favorite castration...
0: Your favorite castration? My favorite
1: castration of all time.
0: What's so your second favorite castration?
2: That'll stay between me and the gods. <laughs> my dog's getting neutered on Monday. That's my second <laughs> favorite castration. <laughs> all
0: right. Well, here's what I have gathered from this whole shebang. First and foremost, everyone hates it and you can't argue with the facts. Um, but what's more? I would like to refer to the order of this episode to sum up my point about order. Part one was creation. The absence of order followed by the creation of order. Part two was foundation. States of disorder remedied by founding ordered states. A restoration of sorts. Parts three and four, libation and castration. Reinforcement of order through the reinforcement of boundaries. Dionysus and Aphrodite straddle boundaries, thus letting us know that these boundaries exist. If creation is order, then creation never really ends. Kind of like myths, as I always say, the story is never really over. The threat of chaos, may it be with a capital C or a lowercase c, makes upholding creation a part of the human condition. You internalize order, you become order. But remember, as I see it, creation as order is perhaps too simple still. And you know what? You know why? Because we aren't giving ourselves or the world enough credit. (laughs) Creation is just as complicated and complex as what is being created. Human beings are complex. Civilizations are intricate. Our physical and social worlds are always being challenged. It's this challenged order that makes this fucked up universe so fucking amazing. It's this desire for more. Our time on this planet isn't made meaningful by internalizing order, it's about as our back described, externalization, leaving nothing in the foreground, waking up every day and living it like it's the first day of our lives the titty mackey, the fall of Troy, the ecstasy of the Bacchae. These are the myths that invoke extreme, profound emotional responses, chaos. It's utter chaos and it's absolutely intoxicating. And this may not be what we were created for, but it's what we live for. So what if we challenge order and tempt chaos? What's the point in creating a world That no one wants. And with that, thank you, everyone.